G'day folks and welcome to the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. My name's Josh Power and this podcast is an opportunity for me to interview anglers in the fly fishing community, both within Australia and overseas. I'll be speaking with people that I find interesting and inspirational, industry leaders and anglers that have helped pave the way for future generations and hopefully in turn preserve a piece of fly fishing history. I hope you enjoy the Australian Fly Fishing Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Fisho's Tack World Harvey Bay, your one-stop fishing shop on the Fraser Coast stocking a wide range of fly tying materials and tackle with access to all the leading brands. Mako Eyewear, a proudly Australian-owned eyewear company that has been on the leading edge of polarised sunglasses for over 25 years. Manic Tackle Project, a collective of like-minded anglers bringing some of the world's best fly fishing brands to the Australian and New Zealand market, including Sims, Scott Fly Rods, Able, Ross and Waterworks Lamps and Reels, Airflow Fly Lines, Loon Outdoors and much more. And Garmin Australia, whether you're chasing a new chart plotter, fish finder, trolling motor or audio system, Garmin has you covered. Hey everybody, it's Angus here from Fly Fishing Outfitters in Western Australia. G'day Angus, well it's great to have you on the podcast mate, I've wanted to get you on here for a while and um, talk about what you're doing over there in the West Coast and what sort of angling adventures you've been up to. Yeah, cool man, appreciate it, cheers for the invite. Did you want to um, just let the listeners know to start with where you're from, so what part of Western Australia and also to how Fly Fishing Outfitters came about? Yeah, so I'm from um, uh, Perth in Western Australia which is uh, obviously the capital, so um, essentially we had one other store in, in Western Australia that was primarily fly fishing called Flyworld, and, um, the gentleman that was running it shut the, the store down, uh, it was about two years ago now and I didn't have anywhere else to go anymore. And, uh, all my fly fishing buddies didn't either. So I thought just start a new one. And it's definitely a, um, it's something you've, yeah, you've, you've taken it and you've run with it straight away and it's got quite a big following online these days and you've done a great job with social media as well, just there's so many followers now that just love jumping on and seeing all those Gucci custom ables that you've always kicking out the door and that sort of thing. And, and some of the trips that you've been on yeah. recently, particularly like Cocos and the one that we're going to talk about today, um, your jungle adventure in Borneo. So it's great to see that you can k- kicking some goals with the stores and for the locals as well. It's so good having a, a bricks and mortar core fly store. Yeah. Cheers, mate. I appreciate that. And I think people do as well. Like it's, it's very important, especially in the fly tying aspect of it. Like it's important to come in and feel the materials that you're going to purchase. So it's, it's great having bricks and mortar business there. Yeah, it is good because you can come in, you can get experience from someone who is passionate about it. And as you said, you can go rifle through different tying materials or you can talk to the cows, come home about different fly tapers. You can get like spool up a reel for someone. So it is nice having that hands-on um, experience and also to that that service there for the customer. Um, I definitely enjoy whenever I'm around, like traveling around the place, dropping into different fly shops, meeting different people. And even if it's just learning about a different fly pattern that you might not have used or tied before, um, you're always gonna learn something from going into your local fly shop. Yeah, that's it. And, and fly fishing is really like a big part of it is the community and the sharing. Like the, the way people sort of evolve and learn through fly fishing is generally by communicating with someone else that's done what they wanna do. So having that shop there, it's not only me in the store, but I always have customers from all sort of walks of life and fishing experiences in there. And, you know, people come in, you get groups of guys chatting, especially like weekend mornings. So it's fantastic. Yeah, you'd find over there in Perth too, because obviously you'd get quite a few tourists there that are either there to visit the city, but also people heading up the coast as well. Um, as you said, you get people from all walks of life, people that are either... Uh, they might be trout fishers from further down south or they might be heading up to Exmouth doing the flats fishing or chasing pelagics. So it'd be a great combination of fly fishers there. So you'd always have something in, someone interesting to talk to in store. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and being in Western Australia as well, like the how vast the, the uh, sort of landscape is for fly fishing is, is astounding. So like obviously we have the trout and all the southwest species, same with like yellowtail kings and etc in the southwest pinkies um jewfish etc and then all the way up into your northern flats too where you get permit bastards um and then we have our pelagic fishing as well for your marlin sails etc so that's the thing the diversity here is quite incredible in western australia so it drags a lot of people from like global scenes and then um and then uh you know you can you can really kind of just go ham on western australia there's so much to go chase 
And the further north you go too, it's not like the east coast where you've got quite a high concentration of population. There's a lot of areas where there's a lot of either small towns and not a whole lot of anything. So um, you've got a beautiful rugged coastline over there, but also too population wise, it's not densely, yeah, densely populated. So there are areas where you can get away from it all if you like. And even for the guys that want to do a bit of a road trip and do some camping and some fly fishing as well, there's some pretty specky spots over there. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I fish the Kimberley a lot myself, so um, it's absolutely fantastic. Some of the flats you can be up there for weeks on end and you don't see another human, which is pretty amazing, really. Yeah, yeah there's not too many places like that. And then you've got places like Ningaloo, which people come from all over the world. And um, yeah, what's the old saying? West is best. There's, um, there's definitely some good country over there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's it. You know, like, and, and these main fisheries that we have, like people speak of, you know, like obviously there's like, Ningaloo or there's Exmouth Gulf, there's the Pilbara, the Kimberley, then there's the Southwest. They're just, they're, there's a big distance between them. There's not many people in those distances. So it, it is very sort of vast and um, you don't have that population to compete with. So a lot of the fishing is, is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is world-class. Like you can see why I like get quite a few Americans going over there and that sort of thing. Cause especially for the flats fishing up North, it's incredible. And places like Exmouth for billfish and like the guys at peak sport fishing there to have they've got a phenomenal operation um so yeah just the diversity of species and the diversity of landscape and that sort of thing it's it's a special place in the world we um yeah, we might really jump is. into um you've just got back from a, a pretty exciting trip um pretty adventurous trip really over to borneo so to give people an idea like borneo's uh, i think it's the third largest island in the world so situated between indonesia and like malaysia that sort of thing um and it's actually split up between it's governed by uh, Brunei, Malaysia, and then Indonesia with Indo owning sort of, I think it's 75% of Borneo um, down in the bottom corner. Um, so it's a pretty remote part of the world. And obviously for for getting there, it'd have its challenges with booking a trip like that with logistics. So how did you go about, like, how did you first hear about this trip and chasing Red Calloy over there? Um, and how did you go about booking the trip? It was, it was actually kind of a series of events. Essentially, I, I saw an article first on the Red Kaloi and I saw a picture and I kind of was just you know, blown back by the, the species itself, just aesthetically, the, the amazing um, sort of way they look, you know, that sort of crimson red color, that big bump head, the big jaw on them and the way that they're built. Um, and I, I got a little bit of interest and then I kind of forgot about it and it sat in the back of my mind. And then I had a gentleman come into the store um, he's a, he's a great customer of mine and uh, he's become a really good friend. And, uh, he grew up actually on the, um, on the Western side of Borneo. So he was from sort of that area and, um, and, uh, he came in and he mentioned that he's sort of got a connection over there and he's going to go do this colloy and, and asked if I would be interested. And obviously I said, yeah, let's do it. And, um, we kind of went from there. He, he got in contact and put me in contact with the guy over there that does the Kaloi trips. His name is Faja and he's sort of, um, I guess he's a bit of a well-known figure in Indonesia for fly fishing. And, um, yeah, we kind of booked the trip and, and then it went from there. And the name of his outfit, that's, um, Spice Island Outfitters, isn't it? Yeah. Spice Island Outfitters. Yeah. And so he does the trips to Borneo for the Red Kaloi, but then also does is it Raja Rampad as well for the um, flats fishing for your bone fishing triggers and all that sort of thing too. Yeah, man, he actually does, um, he does quite a lot of stuff. He does like black bass in Papua New Guinea. He does all your Raja Rampad stuff. Yeah. Your flats fishing, etc. cetera. Um, then he does the Kaloi. He does Masia, Hampala, Snakehead. He's actually quite um, diverse in his fishing. Yeah. And when you're booking a trip to Borneo, do you have to like get a visa for there? Are there fishing permits or anything like that that you have to organize? Or No, it's actually really easy. So once you land in Indonesia, it's all visa on arrival. So I think the visa was about $30 US from memory. Um, so it's quite easy. And, and then the sort of areas that we fish, there was no permits or anything required. So that side of it was easy. Yeah. Okay. And so for flights that so you guys would have flown from Perth, could you get a direct flight to Indo from Perth or? Yeah. So the flight essentially from Perth, we got a, uh, we got a midnight flight from Perth to Jakarta. And then from Jakarta, we fly to Balikpapan and from Balikpapan, you fly to Malak. And there's only two flights a week to Malak. So you got to, that's why we have to fly the midnight to make sure we were there in time. Um, and then from Malak, it's about, it, it's really dependent on the weather and how um, how the roads are, but our drive took about 10 hours to get there. 
Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so how long, yeah, like flight-wise, from um, leaving Perth to actually getting to the four-wheel drive before you start the drive? How long do you reckon it take you? It took us about two and a half days um, with sort of the layovers, and then we had to stay in a hotel one night, wait for the flight to Malak. Um, and then when we got to Malak, we had to stay in a hotel that night to wait till the next morning to start driving. Yeah. Um, so I think by the time we actually got out and sort of jumped on a boat on the first afternoon, it was about three days. Yeah, so that's half the adventure just getting there. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was an adventure for sure. We sort of, yeah, there was some logistics involved and some people got lost and found and, yeah, it was great. <laughs> as long as you didn't lose Paris and your gear and that sort of thing, you'd be fine then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was sort of the uh, one of the worries as well. You sort of the last plane we jumped in, the wall was vibrating the whole time we we're flying. It was like this tiny little plane. You could push one of the panels, like the window panels in, and it was like moving as well. It wasn't connected properly. Um, yeah, it was sort of this like bunky little, I don't know, 20 person plane. And we we're thinking, oh, I hope we get there. But it worked out. I should mention too, Paris is your partner and she went on the trip with you, which is pretty cool that you got the experience that with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's pretty adventurous. She's um, she's great. She's right into her fly fishing as well. So it's kind of, you know, works out where we both love and doing the same trips together. And um, yeah, she had a ball. She had a great time. It's one of those things too that like getting to experience that with a partner, like sometimes it is, it is like fun going on a trip on your own, but when you can experience it with a partner or a good friend and that, it just intensifies the trip altogether. And, and I think for the memories going forward too, like when you can look back on something and talk about it and um, it's great that she's keen because obviously you got to rough it a fair bit being in the jungle. There's no five-star hotels or anything like that. So hats off to her for, um, yeah, getting in there and getting it done. Yeah, that's it. And obviously being a woman adds like another sanitary level, et cetera, to the experience. So it's just one of those things, you know, it's like um, it, it jungle fishing. I wouldn't say it's for everybody. You've got to be a particular person to enjoy it, but she just cruised through it. She loved it. She had a ball. And, and the other half of it when you're out there as well is the wildlife that you experience. Yeah. And uh, we're both right into our wildlife, so it just made it even that much cooler. Yeah, you'd find the flora and fauna, flora and fauna sorry, over there would be pretty unique, um, particularly that part of the world. So Yeah. Unreal. And then climate-wise as well, um, obviously being jungles and that sort of thing, it'd be quite humid. They'd get quite a bit of rainfall and that sort of thing. So even the drive to the river um, would have been a bit of a challenge itself. Oh man, the drive to the river was um yeah, it was something else. We uh basically between the drive there and the drive back, we managed to half destroy both the cars we had. We did some CVs and some wheel bearings and and then uh one point the guys there's a million sort of mud holes that we had to cross um between Malak and the uh fishing area. So um we we're constantly sort of tandem snatch trapping and, and leapfrogging. And um, the guys over there, they're very, very basic in the way that they do it. They're sort of just getting a, a rope that looked good enough and they were sort of jamming a, um, a uh, spanner in the, in the knot and just hoping that it sort of stuck and it blew up a couple of times. So I was always standing pretty far back, but yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Bit of bush ingenuity. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And then once you got to the spot that you're fishing, um, what sort of facilities are there? Like, is it something, just a makeshift camp that they've put together themselves or...? Yeah, so there's no real. Obviously, when you get there, there's no facilities. It's anything that you leave in the jungle generally deteriorates pretty fast um, because you're in the rainforest there. So everything's sort of wet and breaks down. So when you do get there, they'll make a new sort of platform. Um, Essentially, they make this sort of wood platform with an A frame that has a tarp over it. So if it is raining, you can sort of hide under there and have your dinner, etc. then they build a kitchen and then they put um, your tents together as well. So you're sort of, you're sleeping in a tent. Um, and I know Faja was just saying as well that the locals are now building an actual wood platform that's going to stay there constantly. Um, so it's going to be a little better built and that will allow them to sort of get up off the floor. So your tents, you know, cause sometimes when it's raining, you're in the rainforest and then you sort of start walking through mud and dragging into your tent, etc. Um, so they're going to make it a little bit more comfortable and put a pit toilet and that sort of thing. But Basically, you have a, a platform with a tarp over it, a tent, and, and a little kitchen. Yeah, so as you said, it, is, it isn't for everyone. It is for the adventurous at heart. Um, but at the same time, like it's pretty epic because you're out there in the middle of nowhere and it, it basically is. They've just whittled something and put it together for you. Like They really have to have those skills to be able to do that out there and make the most of um, what they've got. 
Yeah, that's it. And and it kind of like I wouldn't want to do it any other way. It adds to the experience. You're out in the jungle and then you're doing it exactly how those guys would do it. Um, so for me, it's sort of it would be great to have like a nice, you know, five star hotel there on the water, like, you know, the stuff you sort of see in um, Bolivia, et cetera. Um, but realistically, you're kind of in the jungle. You're doing it as these guys would naturally do it as well. And it kind of just it adds to the experience. And then you get to see all the wildlife as well. It's all comes like you know, right into your camp, et cetera. So we were seeing like um, gibbons from our camp and, and the amount of just different species of butterflies, et cetera. So it was just unreal. It was really the way to do it for me. Yeah, it's not all like fully commercialized and that sort of thing. So you really feel like you're roughing it and you're getting the full experience, which is the whole reason you go to a, a jungle de- destination like that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely no commercialization about it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so the main species, so obviously the red colloid there, which is like a giant species of gourami, um, that was like the the main one that you were chasing. But what other species are there as bycatch? And yeah. um, so pretty much the main ones really is is the red colloid, obviously that we were going after. Um, they have humpala, marcia, uh, snakeheads. I would say they're sort of your big four there. Um, and then beyond that, there's uh, Jalawat and Baliho. And I'm, not a lot of these fish people would really know about, but they're all really great game species. And um, especially like your humpala are sort of, they look like a carp, but they've got this massive bucket mouth on them. And they're one of the most aggressive fish. We were watching them uh, beach themselves getting bait fish and then, you know, working their way back into the water. Um, and then, yes, yeah, snakeheads were fantastic as well. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't manage to land one, which was a bit of a heartbreak. I hooked a couple, but... Um, one of the other gentlemen on the trip, Neil, he hooked a fantastic emperor and landed it. So that was pretty cool to see. Um, we got a few Marcia between us and uh, I think there was probably two or three Humpala landed as well. So there's a good amount of diversity in the area. Yeah. And so the Marcia, they're a blue Marcia that they get there, aren't they? Uh, I think predominantly in the river that we were in, it's mainly blue Marcia. Um, yeah. They also have, I'm pretty sure further upstream from what I could understand, they also have like a red Marcia and a green and a black. Um, but yeah, the ones that we caught on this trip were blues. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've had a look at some of the photos and yeah, pretty incredible sort of species there. Like looks like something you should find in an exotic fish tank, really. <laughs> oh yeah, that's it. And and you kind of, exactly, you do find them in exotic fish tanks. Like the Marcia go for massive money and uh, especially in Singapore and China. So um, they're kind of under threat as well. So it's it's great to actually see them where we went and they're in still fantastic numbers. Yeah, and hopefully with um, bringing the fly fishing tourism to the area, there can be a bit of like a comp- conservation sort of effort there just to push how important those fish are out in the wild and that sort of thing too. Yeah, definitely. And And the locals are earning good money off of running these fly fishing camps as well. So what it means for them is that if they're earning money from this fish, they're going to protect it. So it is fantastic to see that too. Yeah, that's great to hear. Did you want to um, explain a little bit more about like the red colloy, like sort of how their body's built and that sort of thing? Like I think you said to me the the scales are actually covered in all little spikes and that sort of thing as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So like it kind of, they're funny. They're very rough fish. Everything about them is sort of rough and gnarly. Um, the bottom of their gill plates are very sharp. The end of every scale kind of flicks up into like a little tooth um their fins are kind of built like bones with webbing in between them so very interesting fish um and they have this big gelatinous bump on the head as well kind of like looks like a bumpy and uh and you know we even had them like a couple of the fish that we hooked um snap 60 pound leaders so um you know because they're so rough they're probably quite abrasive on your leader which makes yeah. it a little bit you know adds an extra challenge to landing them but um you know and they're kind of they're funny looking fish. They're very anatomically, they're definitely made to eat off the surface. They've got sort of upwards facing large eyes. They've got a very big bottom like jaw that faces upwards, etc. So yeah, we pretty much fish them the whole entire time on surface. And um, they're, they're very weird the way that they interact as well. Like this fish, sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll cast a fly or land and then it'll just go boof and it'll, you know, eat it like a barramundi or something like that. And it'll, one second and it's just taking the fly under the water and then uh the next one you'll cast it and it'll come up and it'll use that big gelatinous bump on its head to just push the fly around and it'll kind of play with it it might come up and slap it with its tail and then come back and just sip it off the surface so they're very weird and everyone has a different personality interacts with your fly differently so it adds another depth to it as well 
Yeah. And what's the typical size of them over there? Um, I'm not 100% sure of the typical size. Um, I guess there's only uh, been so that... many courts. So. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, exactly. There's only been so many courts. So I know that the IGFA record, I'm thinking off the top of my head, I think it was about 6.3 kilos. Um, but then there was another one landed last year that was a bit over seven kilos. So that sort of, you know, obviously towards the upper end of what's been landed so far. Um, the one that I landed was about five and a half kilos. So I'd say that's probably around that sort of, the guys were saying that sort of that four and a half, five is sort of kind of medium size. Yeah. And what sort of size can they grow up to? Because obviously there'd be a lot that people haven't landed just because of how they fight and the terrain you're fishing in. But do they know typically, or do they know roughly how big they can grow? Yeah, well, there is. We were looking on one of the fisheries uh, uh, research papers over there, and they had actually netted one um, a few years back that they measured at twenty kilos. Bloody hell! Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know how you would land that because they're incredible to fight. Um, the second last day that we were there, my partner actually hooked into one that was in very shallow, clear waters where you get to see sort of the entirety of the fish in the fight. Um, it was pretty epic to watch. But this fish, she fought it fantastically, kept it out of the structure the whole entire time. And then as I was going to net it, took one last run and, and just blew up the 60-pound leader. So, I mean, we got to have a good look at that fish and I reckon it was probably safe to say that it was sort of doubling the size of my one. Bloody hell. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it was a crazy experience. And it was, it was cool to watch as well very shallow water you got to see the whole entire fish as it came up sort of sideways and ate the fly so we got a good look but you never really know until you land it right yeah that's it did they um have they sort of pieced together like if there's the characteristics how the males and females feed a little bit like are they sort of a little bit different how they'll attack a fly or yeah can can they usually tell sort of thing which are the bulls and which are the females and um, the only difference that I saw between the bulls and the females was that the bulls would sometimes use the bump on their head to push the fly around a little bit before, um, okay. whereas the females lack that bump. So, um, yeah, other than that, it, they were very similar in the way that they acted. I couldn't really see too many differences. Yeah. And so traversing the rivers and that sort of thing over there, what type of boats are they fishing? Are they like a canoe sort of thing or... Yeah, they're those. Uh, they're very like long wooden, like traditional boats. Uh, long fin, long tails, or whatever they call them. Yeah, but they're they're a long boat, skinny boat. They've got to kind of maneuver between a lot of uh, structure in these streams. So you can't really, you can never run like a skiff or a punt or anything like that. You need a skinny boat. Yeah, and they're just running like a little outboard on there, and then paddle power for the rest of it while you're actually fishing, or. Yeah, exactly. So a little outboard um, that gets you upstream. Once you're upstream, you sort of turn, you kind of wait for about half an hour for things to settle down. They're running these boats with no muffler or anything. So they're kind of like, you know, they chug along at a few decibels. And um, when you get there, you kind of leave it for half an hour, turn the boat around. And uh, it, these streams all have current in them. So you kind of just go down and the guy at the front will just steer the boat with his paddle. Yeah, okay. And typically, like, how long are you running from camp to get to the area that you'd normally start fishing? Like, is it a matter of 15, 20-minute run sort of thing, or is it you're travelling up to a couple of hours to get to areas? Or uh, Pretty much between sort of usually about an hour to two hours a morning, you're travelling up, and then you can fish that from, you know, we'll usually leave at sort of 7, 8 a.m., and then we'll get back at um, sort of just before sunset. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the river, is it like a, a fairly clear water or is it one of those things that like up in the shallows, it's clear and then a bit more color to it as you get into the channel itself or? Yeah. It. So in the shallows, you generally have a lot more like clarity to it. It, it is very tannin though. Um, so yeah, as soon as you get into deeper water, it starts to get a lot darker, but then you will see the fish come up as well and sort of move on the surface and you can see them quite clearly. Um, it's just, because you're in the rainforest, you know, sometimes it'll rain 100 k's away and then you'll get that runoff that runs down. So even some days you'll have, it will look perfect, nice blue skies, et cetera, and then you'll get this mud water sort of pushed through. So it, it does sort of get dirty at times, but for the most part when we were there, it was pretty clear. Um, the only thing uh, is obviously you're in sort of like this really dense canopy as well being in the rainforest. So 
sometimes even though it's quite clear it's hard to see into the water but the fish is quite bright as well so you will sight cast them at times yeah okay and it's like the river bottom is it like bouldery something like gravel or is it more so like a like a hard mud or um it's actually forever changing so generally when you drive up further to where you start you'll generally start in areas that are more gravel um gravel and sand and that's what the masir especially love um and then as you sort of start drifting down, then it becomes more sort of sand and sediment. Um, a lot of it's sort of this, uh, it's almost like a fish tank sand, quite a coarse sand. And then it's just uh, its just got like a million and one snags and sticks and trees in it. Yeah. Is it um, fairly fast flowing water? Or is it a fairly steady pace? Or uh, It can be fast. It definitely picks up, especially sort of when you have a rain upstream. Yeah. The, the river can flood really, really quickly. Um, the good thing though, is that it does come down really quickly too. So like one day we were there, um, we had this afternoon, we were fishing all day. It was kind of slow. And then the storm rolled in and, uh, and, uh, the fish kicked up for about half an hour before a storm. They went really hard and started feeding. And, uh, then it started raining too heavy to fish anymore. And the fish sort of, you know, you're fishing surface. They're not going to see your fly or hear your fly. So we sort of, uh, went back down to camp waited it out for the afternoon i think the river probably rose about a meter and a meter and a half and then by the next morning it was all the way back down probably even lower than the previous day so it, it does run out really quick yeah okay that's pretty impressive just to see how quickly you can dump all of that water so. yeah yeah that's it. it 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 drains and fills up very fast it's quite unusual and you know you might be stuck sometimes in i know that one of the guys had fished that area before and uh he got stuck in his uh in his tent for a day or two, just, you know, having to wait for the rain. Yeah. And I guess it's one of those things, depending on how much rain, you don't know how long you could get stuck there for traveling out as well, jumping back in the car. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing as well. So like, if it does rain too much, then the road sort of floods and then you're kind of stuck. So it is, um, yeah, it's, it's, you're kind of playing at the, you know, mercy of the rainforest there. And I guess that's the good thing about going someone like Fajar that specialises in those trips. You know you're in good hands because he's obviously got contingency plans and um, they sort of they know the, the local terrain and that sort of thing and can work with the local people. So it's not like you're trying to do a DIY and hoping for the best. Yeah, exactly. And and like talking to Fajar on the way there, he was saying, you know, like I always have an A, B, C and D plan sort of thing. Um, you just kind of have to in the rainforest and, and the... Um, best part about him as well is he creates these great relationships with the locals so um they're always eager to help him and he's always helping them so things always kind of work out you know yeah and the local people they're the Dayak people is it yeah they're the Dayak people yeah yeah so that's the basically um the name of like the indonesians um i think the, the non-muslim indonesians that live over there sort of thing um are referred to as the Dayak. so yeah, yeah, I think um, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure on how it all works, but they they're the the natives of the area. Yeah, and population wise, like Borneo, obviously to be I think it's 20 odd million or something like that. So, um, with them, like the nearest cities and towns and that sort of thing, how like obviously from where you guys major port, like 10 hour drive, that sort of thing. But are there any like major villages around or anything like that, or is it once you're out in the jungle, it's pretty remote for yeah so there there is a village the guys that build the camp that Dayak tribe they live um maybe i think it was about an hour full drive from the camp yeah um, i'm not sure how many people live in that village but there's probably um just walking around i would say there's somewhere around 20 houses yeah okay yeah cool and for them um obviously like do they is agriculture big over there or do they have to get stuff in from the cities or how do they go about food and all that sort of thing yeah, so that community had two cars. They do yeah. runs into town, into back into Malak to get supplies. Yeah. Um, but these guys also rely heavily on the water system and, and hunting there. So they're, they're big into fishing and hunting. They have uh, rooster deer over there. They have uh, bearded pigs, etc. And then uh, they eat uh, a lot of the fish out of the river too. Yeah, okay. And so a lot of the food you would have been eating at camp would have been fairly local cuisine, something that they've prepared or...? Yeah, so um, most of the trips that they do, they uh, go and shoot a deer or, or something of the like to um, feed the uh, the people on the camp. 
this trip, we pretty much ate fish most of the time and chicken. So they cook all of their local food and it's absolutely fantastic as well. The cook that came um, was amazing. So you'd wake up in the morning and you'd have, you know, five or six plates of different foods there. And then same, you get back at night time. there's like 10 plates of different things that you can, you know, pick from. So it was really good. That's good because obviously like at the end of a hard day's fishing and like you, you're roughing it accommodation wise, it is good to have a good feed like that. So um, and to try those different cuisines when you're traveling, that's always an interesting thing as well. Yeah, that's it. And it is a big thing. You're sort of, you're fishing, you know, like a full day and you're sort of balancing on a boat, etc. And, um, and, uh, it is tiring. So when you get back and you're sort of, you know, and you're sweating all day as well, you're in the rainforest. So you get back and there's like a nice meal and you have a coffee and, and that's fantastic. Yeah, you'd be absolutely knackered. <laughs> what about the, um, so the Kaloi, what are they mainly feeding on? Um, is it like insects and that's thing they're feeding on or do they feed on little fish as well? Or? Uh, I think they're pretty opportunistic really. So um, they definitely, they definitely do eat fish. Um, they'll eat frogs. They seem to eat, they love fruit. So um, they, the, the flies that we were mainly fishing were a, um, they call them a BBC or a big black cockroach. So they're just, yeah, they're designed to, um, to imitate this sort of native cockroach that they have, uh, and, um, they'll eat grasshoppers. I think anything that really lands on the water, that's protein for them. They're going to eat. Yeah. I guess it's like some of our natives here in the river and that sort of thing, like big Murray cod and bass and sooties and that if something falls in, in a river situation, they're going to have a, have a crack at it sort of thing. Cause otherwise they might not get a feed for a while. Exactly. And the problem there as well, um, is these fish have to be opportunistic because that river can flood and it can stay flooded for a few days, you know, if it have the continuous rain. So um, they do sort of seem very opportunistic being that they'll eat fruit. They'll also eat bugs and, 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 you know, they'll eat, um, I guess, little turtles and things as well. They're probably quite opportunistic in that regard. And so typically how big were the flies that you're tying like hook size and are you running rattles in them or anything like that just to help with the, like if the water's a bit dirtier and, Yes, yeah, so I did run rattles um, in in a lot of my flies. We were fishing two O's, um, pretty much most of the time fishing two O's. And um, yeah, they were sort of, you know, you would time the full length of the shank, um, you know, the foam, the full length of the shank. You would always have the tail end sort of, you know, exposed because the hook exposed because the fish does like almost always short strike, which is very painful. And what's it like setting the hook? Have they got a fairly bony mouth or is it like a, a softer sort of tissue? Like what's it like? Do you need a, a fine gauge hook to penetrate or do you want something that's a bit heavier gauge so you're not straightening it? Or Yeah, it's kind of a dilemma because the mouth is built like titanium. Like it's half impossible <laughs> to put a flight, like a hook into it, you know. But then at the same time, you don't want to use something that's too thin of a gauge because they're just going to bend it. Yeah, I think I saw some photos that you put up and like a couple of straightened hooks in there as well. So, yeah, yeah, we we straightened a fair few hooks on the on the trip, and um, by the sounds of it, everybody before us has too. So, they're kind of it's hard because the problem is these fish live like in structure, and you're always hooking them really close to structure, and um, they're built like a rowing paddle, and they want to get back into that structure as well. So you hook them and you've got to kind of just, you know, double hand that line, hold on to them and try and stop them from going anywhere. And uh, yeah, more than often something in that lineup in your gear is going to give. Yeah. You'll find a weak spot pretty quickly. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and they do, they find it really quickly. There's uh, you know, a lot of guys have broken rods so far. Um, um, you know, hooks opening up, a lot of fly lines have been busted. So they generally do find something that they can break. Yeah, in that article that you wrote about your trip, um, you described them as being like a GT, but with four-wheel drive, um, four drive low capability sort of thing. So that's pretty cool if yeah. you've got the, um, the aggression and the power of a Jeep with low range. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. They've got heaps of grunt, you know. So that's a, you hook them and it's just like a world of chaos emits. So they don't, they don't do any big long runs up the river. They just want to get back into their home. Yeah. Um, and that means when you hook them, you have to be super, super onto it. If you give them sort of, you know, an inch, they're gone. And um, I saw there was a fly lords post and there was a million comments on there. And it was like, you know, you can fight this fish on the reel. But um, if you let that fish get to the reel, man, it's gone. Yeah. 
I guess it's like barrier um, tight snags and that sort of thing. Like it's just hand to hand combat. You're not getting them on the reel. They're not running. It's like you're just trying to stop their head from getting buried in that that gnarly sort of timber underneath the water. Yeah, exactly. And like this fish has all that power, but it's like it's also coupled with the intelligence. So the thing that I could probably most assimilate them to is a tusky in terms of the like fighting smarts. Um, this fish, you know, they'll kind of sometimes even when you're fighting them, they'll kind of go, oh, kind of give up and cruise along and you think oh, I've got him now. And then you'll see him and he'll kind of just work his way over towards a branch and then he'll go, nah, I'm in that. And then he'll just run straight for it and try and wrap you around everything he possibly can. So um, their fighting intelligence is just incredible as well. Yeah. And so what sort of tackle are you using? Like you were running a 10 weight over there? Yeah, so a short 10 weight. Um, you're fishing jungle canopy and you need to be really, really accurate with your cast. So I fished a um, 8 foot 4 inch 10 weight sector and um, then I ran a um, airflow power taper as well. So you need something that loads really quickly. You don't want a really false cast because your boat is moving. So you need to get cast into those spots as quickly as possible. Um, and then I ran, um, I mean, really for your reel, man, it, it doesn't matter because you don't want to fight the fish on the reel. So I ran a, a, an a Able SDS as my reel there, but it's anything will do. You want to fight that fish on the line. Yeah. I guess it's one of those things, those SDSs, like it's such a nice reel as well for you. Like on a trip, just having that Gucci bit of kit there as well makes for some pretty specky photos for you too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I sort of, I enjoy, I'm a gear dude, man. So I love, you know, having nice gear and, and looking at my, you know, playing with the gear and having a look at it and stuff. It's just, it's an experience for me. So I enjoy that and um, I had it there. I'm going to bring it and put it on my uh, and my rod and use it. But yeah, realistically, it's like, it's one of those things, even the rod, you know, you, I couldn't even say what rod would be good for fighting them because you want to sort of, you know, fight that rod, the fish with the line. You want to keep that rod straight and put as much pressure as possible on the fish. You can't fight him with the tip of the rod. You're just, you know, you ruin it. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being a gear guy as well because it's one of those things like everyone works so hard these days. When you go on a trip, you want to be using nice gear that like when you pick it up sort of thing, you go like it actually brings a bit of joy to the situation as well. You don't want to pick up something and go, oh, what am I? fishing with this piece of crap for so if you can at the end of the day go like i love the gear that i'm fishing that's the thing like yeah that's that's half of the um half of the thing with it i guess and those um those those shorter scott sectors those eight foot fours they are super accurate for that style of fishing like i've got a few mates that fishing for barra and that sort of thing where they want something that is um loads a little bit quicker still generates plenty of line speed and that sort of thing um but like for you guys with that overhanging canopy and close quarters and that having that shorter rod's definitely advantageous and coupling it with something like a power taper as you said it loads that little bit quicker but also two turning over those bulky foam flies it's not like you're throwing like a little beetle pattern sort of thing like you're throwing a 2-0 big cockroach um so having a line that can turn yeah. it over effectively and just bang it into that snag as that boat's moving um that's going to be the perfect setup yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, a lot of guys also fish like your sage peacocks and, and, and you know, your quite short jungle rods. But uh, that eight foot, around that eight foot is just absolutely perfect for it. It keeps you away from the canopy a little bit. You've got a lot of vines there to deal with. Yeah. And then um, just that optimal accuracy is the most important thing. You want to put that fly like, you know, in a couple inch gap in between some structure and, and you have to get it there. Otherwise, that boat's moving in the current and you don't want to have to fight that current to get back up and unhook your fly, you know, because you're, you're running like we're running 40, 60 pound liters there. So they're not that easy to break either. Yeah. Yeah. And with um, like when you're fishing sort of thing, is it just basically just drifting along and bly casting or you sort of picking spots like little back eddies and that sort of thing where you go, oh, I think there'll be something sitting there or are you just trying to cover as much water as possible? Um. I definitely wouldn't call it blind casting. It's it's very strategic. So the fish like specific things. So they do really like sort of slow water after a fast run. They like to sit in a pool. They love to sit in foam as well. So it's that sort of like, you know, that trout saying foam is home. Yeah. Um, they do like to sit in that. It's where food's going to come into them. It's going to drift above them. It gives them time to feed. Uh, they also love, um, especially if you sort of have a fast run and off to the edge, there's some slow water with a couple of logs stacked up. They love to sit under those logs and they can just sit, look up and just wait for food to go over the top out of the current. So uh, also if you have a wall, they'll sit in little divots on the wall where they can get out of the current too. So 
they really like to sit in areas where they can see food go past them, but they're not expending too much energy. Yeah. And then um, also you'll find them in uh, areas where you can sidecast them too. So you also get them uh, sometimes like a couple we sided. They're very shallow. They're right up on the bank. Um, and we had one one day where it was like, I would say in a foot of water, it was crystal clear and it was sitting there sort of like a trout head up the stream. And uh, it was just feeding on little insects going down. And they had a, when we were actually there, they had a, a massive mayfly hatch um, usually in the morning. So they, they would come and eat the mayflies as well, just like a trout, which was pretty interesting. That's and crazy. Um, that one, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really incredible. And um, like that one, I got a really good sight cast at it, cast over the top of this log, ate it. And of course, it's just the wrong, you know, you kind of make the cast and then afterwards you go, yeah, that wasn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> good intentions to yeah. start with. Yeah, that's it. And you kind of, you know, you'd rather just get the fight, like have a fight with a fish, just get the hook up and then try and work it out later. But with this fish, it's kind of, you know, you've got like a million and one chance of getting anywhere from there. Yeah. And those, like even the vines and that sort of thing underwater, like obviously you've got big log jams and that sort of thing, but the vines, that had add a bit of an issue as well just because everything get, can get tangled up, particularly fly lines and, and leaders and all that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. So the fish that I landed, I hooked it through... Uh, I got it wrapped up three times on a vine before I managed to land it. Far out. It'd be a bit of, um, I guess the communication in the boat would be a little bit hard because if you've got one of the local villages, like that language barrier there, like you're trying to manoeuvre around the boat and they're trying to paddle you around as well. So that would add to the challenges Yeah, on top of things. Yeah, that's it. And like, you know, to learn a couple of words, it's not hard. So you kind of learn straight away to say like go and stop and left and right and that, but then you're like, hooked up on this fish that you've traveled three days to find, etc., and kind of goes all out the window and you're just going, fuck the other way, man, the other <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And so with the, um, like the marcia and the snakehead and that sort of thing, you said the marcia preferred that sort of gravelier bottom and that sort of thing. What type of flies are you fishing for those guys? And obviously you'd be using lighter gear as well. Uh, yeah. So I fish the marcia on a seven weight. Um, and, uh, realistically they're more like bait fish patterns so the fly of choice for us was a wiggle minnow um so we ran wiggle minnows and uh that we're sort of running them in like a yellow color with a red head and um they seem to be pretty partial to those you could also run game changers um, a multitude of different patterns but wiggle minnows just create a lot of vibration in the water and the, and the marcia seem to love that yeah and where are they sitting in the water? Something like, are they tied up in the structure as well? Or are they more so like up on the bank or? Um, yeah, so they're kind of, man, they're very similar to a trout, the way that they sit in the water. So you will find them, especially same thing, you get a fast run and then you get a slow pull after the run. You'll get them sitting in that. Um, they definitely love to sit sort of, you get a little back current behind a log, they'll sit in that. And, um, and then a lot of the time as well, you'll kind of just, as you're coming over like a, a rapid of riffles on that rocky bottom, they'll be sitting like right in the rapid feeding as well. So uh, you kind of find them in, um, they'll kind of spread out through the system and that and you just cast it likely structure strip and, and you, they're quite aggressive. You'll see them come out and chase your fly out of the structure. Yeah. And how did, um, so obviously for Paris, like this is a completely new trip for both of you, but how did she go on this trip and how did she go fighting the Kaloi and that sort of thing? Cause obviously, as you said, they're, they're a brutal fish to um to try and land. So how did she find the experience? Yeah, yeah, she had a ball. Um, I mean, like I'm, you know, I'm 95 kilos and six foot tall, so I'm, you know, a relatively like bigger dude. She's like five and a half foot and probably 50 kilos, you know. So like these fish, <laughs> and they'll pull me around in the boat. So she did amazingly well trying to fight them. Um, unfortunately, she didn't land one. She did get a lot of hookups. Um, like every, there was four of us fishing on this trip, and and the one that I got was the only one landed for the week. So they're not easy. Yeah. And um, you know, it's it's one thing hooking them. You would hook one or two a day, but to actually land them is another story. Uh, it, it's just yeah. There's so many things that have to go right for them to be landed. You know, from your gear not failing to them not getting in structure to you know, yeah, just a million different factors. So. She did fantastic. She had a ball. Um, it was a really new thing for her. She's never even casted a, a 10 weight before. Um, all of her flats fishing, she fishes an eight and a nine. So, um, you know, it was a new rod. It was a new style of fishing as well. It was just, uh, 
it was completely new for her and she did fantastic. She picked it up quick. Um, she was casting really well, especially the last couple of days of the trip. She started getting nailed right in. And um, she was, yeah, she was really onto it. She got a couple really good eats and made the most of them. But yeah, it just didn't come together. So we're going to have to go back for that one. <laughs> Sounds epic, mate. Well, I guess too, like even um, the fact of like with a 10 weight, you just go the added weight and that sort of thing when you're stepping up to a rod like that. And especially like, as you said, she's got a pretty slight frame. So um, she doesn't have that power behind her. So she's done exceptionally well to fish that that whole time. So. Yeah, exactly. And like that, that bigger fish that I was previously talking about, man, she like, she hooked this fish. I was playing with my camera and she goes, oh, and like, you know, you kind of hear there's something going on. I look up. <laughs> And this thing is just sitting underneath their fly and they kind of do this a lot of the time. They'll just watch the fly drift for like 10 seconds before they sip it in um, if they don't buff it. And, um, yeah, I looked up and this thing's looking at a fly and I was like, you know, sort of amazed at the size of it, et cetera. So I couldn't do anything. I was frozen as well. And uh, it sipped it in and she just waited for that mouth to close, hit it perfectly, got a great hook up, and um, she just held that rod straight, double hand on the line and fought this thing like, held it out of the structure and um and uh yeah i was quite amazed actually how well she fought it but uh, yeah it just unfortunately it didn't come together in the end and um the fish it broke the leader but yeah to hold a fish like that out of the structure is uh, not an easy thing yeah yeah it's just that real sort of white knuckle sort of stuff i guess it's, it's probably similar to what a lot of guys get to experience over in um, Papua new guinea chasing the black bass like just trying to keep the head out 100%. of there that's the thing, you know, you're like, you're burning your hands as well. Like you're, you're getting hurt fighting these fish. So, you know, for a woman to hang on to it like that, it was really cool to see. Yeah. I think it's great. And she got stuck into some humpala and stuff like that as well on the lighter gear. Uh, yeah. Oh, she got a few baliho and jalawats and, and some tinfoil barbs and yeah, a multitude of other things. So yeah, she did really well. Got some cool species. I haven't even heard of some of those fish. So what are they like? What sort of species are they like? Are they like a, um, like more like a marseer or are they? Um, so the Baliho, it's body, it's tail and, and it's body kind of looks almost like a, um, like a tiger fish, but it's, it's got this sort of more of a fish tank fish sort of head to it. You know, it's kind of got a tame head. Um, they again are surface feed as well. They eat berries and and uh, they eat bugs, etc. Uh, the tin foil barbs are they're kind of like a big fish tank fish, like a big barb um, that you see in aquarium yeah. stores. So they're silver. They've got a red tail on them. And um, then the jalawats. The jalawats grow quite big, so they're they're again kind of this big silver sort of hard pulling. They get. Uh, quite large one of the locals caught one on the last trip that they were showing pictures of on spin gear and it was about a 10 kilo fish so they get quite big oh jesus yeah <laughs> when you think like aquarium fish you think oh yeah it's going to get to a couple of kilos not 10 kilos that's a stonker yeah that's it and it's like you know it, these freshwater fish as well there's not too many freshwater fish out there that fight like these species too so that's that's really cool to see like the humpala the marcia the kaloi the snakeheads they all pull really hard yeah and pretty epic too like you're the first australian to actually catch one of those kaloi on fly and only the eighth person in the world so um it's obviously one of those fisheries that they're still pioneering and pretty exciting to be part of the early days really yeah that's it so there's actually there's nine people that have caught uh kaloi on fly so far there's eight people that have caught the bull yeah okay um, but um so it's like super super fresh you know there's there's still kind of figuring things out there's you know the fly patterns are new, etc. So it's only going to get better from here. Yeah. And the other guys that were fishing on the trip, did you know these people? Or was there someone like people from around the world that Farja had just put together a trip with, with yourself, Paris and the other gentleman or? Uh, yeah. So there was Ruben um, that, uh, that took us on the trip or kind of like, you know, set it up in the first place. Uh, there was obviously Paris and myself. There was another gentleman there, uh, Neil. So Neil is a, um, a Scottish bloke that lives in Jakarta and he's become very good friends with Faja over the years and they, they fish a lot together through Raja Ampat and do this jungle fishing style stuff as well. So um, he was an absolutely fantastic dude and he was a real character as well. And that's a cool thing about these trips. Some of the people you meet are just, yeah, you know, you wouldn't meet him anywhere else. That's it. Like I've got some mates that they've met people on trips, like in places like Christmas Island and that, and they've, they've established really good friendships after that. And they've either ended up moving to the same towns just because 
they've obviously run in those same friendship circles and get along together really well or they'll organize an annual trip together just because like they did hit it off so well so fishing is great as um yeah basically bringing people together from all walks of life yeah that's it and and you you are meeting like-minded people out there you know those people are there for the same purpose that you're there so you generally get along with them and then you end up having you know it's like you don't just have the fishing and the wildlife and then the camping experience. And, you know, on top of that, there's these really cool people that you become good friends with and it just makes the experience that much better. Yeah. And as you said earlier too, um, you're going to have to go back there again, obviously, so Paris can get her colloy and you want to try and catch something, um, keep obviously catching the, the bigger size fellas and try and crack one of those 10 kilo fish if you can. So what's the plan for next year? Um, we have booked like, you know, work and weather permitting. We will be going back there in January. Um, essentially she, yeah, we want to get her one. She sort of, you know, finished the trip sort of feeling like she should have caught one and did it. And she did some great fights, etc. So she, you know, she's got to get back there and land that fish. And, um, for myself as well, you know, a lot of the time I love doing a trip to an area and I have limited time with work, etc. So I like doing a trip and then I'll move to the next place and do another trip somewhere else. But with this one, I thought, you know, I just couldn't turn up another opportunity to go and chase Chloe again. They're cool fish. They all eat different. They look amazing and they, they sort of fight like no other freshwater fish. So I thought, um, yeah, let's do it again. Yeah. I think you had mentioned too that you're going to try and get to Rajarampad at some stage. So did you want to talk a little bit about the fishing there and what you can experience there too? Yeah, so uh, what we're doing with this next trip is because we're going to be in Indonesia. Anyways, we're going to fly to uh, Papua New Guinea and go from there to um, to Raja Ampat, then come back, fly back into Indonesia, into Jakarta and fly back out to um, Borneo again. So we'll do both of them a week on each one at the same time. And um, yeah, Raja Ampat is, uh, is, I mean, it's kind of really similar species to what you're going to chase in somewhere like Cocos Island. So you have like your bonefish, you've got your triggers, you've got your GTs, you've got your Neapolitan wrasse, et cetera. Um, you've got coral trout and then you have your pelagics as well uh, off the atoll. So it's, it's yeah, from all reports, it's fantastic fishing. It seems like you, you probably get a really good number of triggers and GTs there as well, which I'm quite excited for. Yeah. And with that, is it like a mothership sort of thing that you're doing there or...? Uh, there's two ways to do it. Essentially, you can either go there on a speedboat and then stay, uh, in the coconut farmer huts. So the speedboat is about six hours, uh, drive. Otherwise, um, you can go on the liverboard, which is what we're going to do. And then you get, you know, you get bunk bed and chef, etc., And you, you know, all your stuff is on the boat. So it kind of makes it a little easier. Um, the coconut huts are a little bit more rudimentary. So it should be should be a pretty fun trip we're going to it's about a 16 hour putt in the live board live board ship to get there and um, then they sort of just park off the atoll and to get onto it we're um we're using paddle boards so we're pretty interesting yeah mate um gavin davis he's fished over there before and he said that they fish paddle boards and he said they're exceptional from getting from flat to flat and obviously they're so quiet too like you don't have any noise like you can basically either pull yourself through or just paddle through really quietly and yeah, exactly. And, and like Faja was saying as well when we were talking about this trip, is the paddle boards also give you a sort of like height advantage too. So when you're paddling around on them, you can see fish from a bigger distance and then you can sort of, you know, dip off the paddle board and go and stalk the fish. So I think it's quite a, it sounds like quite a fun way to sort of, you know, experience the area and it should be um, sort of add another element to it. Yeah. And for people like if they're interested in these sort of trips and want to find out a bit more information, What's the best way to um, contact you just to shoot you an email at the shop or? Yeah, either shoot us an email at um, yeah, got info at flyfishingoutfitters.com.au. Otherwise, um, yeah, hit us up on socials. You can either message us on Instagram or Facebook and I'll always answer. Yeah, and that's one of those things that um, you can always promote that if you've got any upcoming trips that you're going to be hosting or also too, if it's something that um, with work commitments, if you can't make it, you can always put them in touch with Faja and, um, I know he'll appreciate the business because it's obviously something that he's trying to pioneer a few areas and really grow it um, and pretty exciting yeah, times yep. over there for them too. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And I mean, the diversity of fishing in Indonesia is, is incredible too. So um, 
and you know he's a good guy to sort of speak to that about he's going to do, help you do everything from that jungle fishing to the flats fishing so yeah we're we're also going to do some hosted trips there into indo as well so um hit us up or hit Fajr up and you know there's always going to be something that's probably going to tickle most people fancies over there yeah and then moving on from Borneo, another place that you've been in recent times too was Cocos Keeling Islands. Did you want to touch base a bit on Cocos? Yeah, yeah, Cocos was cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it's quite it's easily accessible from us in in Perth. So you got that one. We got a uh, a flight there. It goes from Perth to Christmas Island and then uh, to Cocos. So I think it's about five hours. And then the one on the way back, we got a um, direct flight, which is about four hours. So pretty easy, uh, pretty accessible. The fishing there is incredible as well. Um, we got, you know, GTs, bones, bumpies, a stack of different species, and, and we were fishing for six days, you know, so it, it's fantastic. It's really easy, accessible fishing too. Yeah, and that was through the guys at Hello Backing, the lodge over there? or Yeah, Hello Backing. So um, Nick, uh, the gentleman that runs Hello Backing, when we went, he had sort of closed for the week and we went over and visited and, you know, a group of us fished together and stuff. And it was just, yeah, it was awesome. It was a bit of a bloke's week thing and um, Paris came along as well. So, yeah, it was a good experience. And, um, yeah, we just kind of, you know, chilled out, took it easy, got up whenever we wanted in the morning, walked the flats, took the cars out and, um, and uh, we pretty much just fished West Island the whole time. Uh, if I had more time, I would have experienced a little bit more of, you know, high island and, and that sort of thing. Uh, we did horse for a one day, which was really cool. Um, and then the rest of it was, yeah, sort of West Island, South and the North Point. And, and um, the fishing there, it's just, it's accessible. You know, you can just get out of the car. You can walk onto a flat. You can, you can go and fish these areas. You just pick the tides, man, and then, you know, you you can sort of just play the rest of it and it's just awesome yeah and like species wise you've got um it's one of those bonefish fisheries that it's, they're quite big bonefish on average so for guys that have gone to other places and that sort of thing where the average size might only be a couple of pounds sort of thing if you want to go catch a big bone cocos is one of those places you've got the big bumpies there and good numbers of them gts you've got block out permit there um your bluefin trevally all that sort of thing so there's so many different species that you can target and also to Cocos itself, obviously being like an Australian territory, um, it's not a third world country by any means. So for people that want to go somewhere that is a little bit more relaxed and laid back, um, you can still go there and grab a coffee and all that sort of thing. And it's, um, yeah, a bit more like home. Yeah, hundred percent, you know, and it's like, it's all Airbnbs there. So you go there, you, if you book an Airbnb or if you stay with Nick or whatever, you know, it's like, it's, it's Australian standard living, um, there's a nice restaurant there. There's a, a pub and a pizza bar and, and um, yeah, that's it. You know, it's like you've got clean, fresh water. You've got, you know, nice beds and everything. It's a comfortable place to fish from. And, um, and you know, if you stay like hello backing, you walk out 50 metres and there's a flat in front of the lodge there pretty much and it's, um, you know, full of bones and you'll see these sort of like you'll look out in the right tyres and you'll see these big blue tails waving at you from the bumpies and it's pretty incredible. And like for them too, like they've got a skiff over there and I think he's got a second one on the way and they've also got the sportsman. So there's also the opportunity if you don't want to flats fish, if you want to go chase some pelagics and that sort of thing. Like I've, I've seen he's caught a sail on fly over there and obviously there's tuna and wahoo and all that sort of thing. So um, for the, the fly fisher that wants to tick over, tick off some of those bigger pelagics or even for people that want to do a bit of um, stick baiting and that sort of thing as well as fly fishing, it, it can cater to sort of both parts of the market. Yeah, hundred percent. Those guys, you know, know a lot about spin as well. And um, yeah, Nick got a a sail on fly, um, and then uh, you, he's got a couple of really good guides there as well too. So essentially, whatever you want to do, you want to go chase G's on stick baits. Um, you want to go and fish the lagoon for bones all day. They can they can do it all. There's a good crew as well of uh, of locals there that are doing guiding too. So you know, like even if you know this lodge is booked out or whatever you can go there and you can still always get a guide for a day it's it's pretty cool yeah i guess that's the beauty like for people that want to do the full lodge experience they can book with hello backing but for others that might go there and it might even be more of just a um a family thing where they just want to book an airbnb and do a bit of fishing and a bit of the relaxation side of thing or like even um like kite surfing that's quite big over there 
So you could even go, right, I will hire a couple of local guides for a day or two and do that. And then the rest of the time's just a relaxation sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's, that's it for a lot of people, you know, they go there for a week and they might get a day or two fishing and now that's a great way to do it as well. Like those guys can take you out and they can chase triggers or permit or whatever you want to go and chase and, and you can do it day by day then. Yeah. And it's quite a few people like from WA that seem to go over and do the DIY thing as well. And a couple of guys I know from Christmas Island, they're working over there. And obviously because Cocos is so close for them, if they've got some time off and that, if they don't want to go back to the mainland, it's basically a hop, skip and a jump and you've got some phenomenal fishing and um, just a good place to yeah, kick back as well. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's uh, it's very chilled. It's very laid back. There's not a lot going on there, so it's kind of slow pace. You can sort of, you know, wander around and and just you know the days kind of go slow and just cruise and it's fun. Yeah, and the cool thing is too with you having fly fishing outfitters like obviously fisheries like Cocos and now Borneo and that you've experienced them and they're the sort of places that you want to keep going back to. So if people are looking at booking a trip there they can also come in store and see you shoot you an email give you a call that sort of thing and they're going to get good experience from someone that's actually fished those fisheries um like it's always well and good to um just get advice off someone that's a knowledgeable fly fisher but if you've got someone that has experienced it firsthand it definitely makes a big difference so um i think for anyone that is lucky enough to drop into your store it's great for them to have that um that service there and that level there or there's also you've got a, a comprehensive website as well too. So if anyone wants to jump online and order, they can probably just give you a quick call beforehand or shoot you an email. Um, and then it's all at the click of a button as well for them. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, it is kind of important as well, talking to people that have done those things before you go on a trip like that. Because even, you know, down to just the little nitty gritty things, you know, like you want to go chase bumpies and you see these guys in the Seychelles and that and they're chasing one of these big turtle grass flats and they, you know, get these massive bumpies and they can fight them for a big distance. And then you get a cocos and you've got these short reefs and you've got like staghorn coral and it becomes a much gnarlier fight. So those little things, you know, you get those tips and handy sort of pointers that help you when you get to that area to do the right things and make things happen is always a, you know, you know is, a, is a good thing. Yeah. And even just to help out with like fly selection and that sort of thing. And if people want to tie their own, like you've got a, quite a massive selection of materials there too. You can always run people through like, right, are you going to need this and these different weights and this sort of hook pattern is going to be suitable for this species. And um, it is good to be able to run through all that sort of things as well. Yeah, most definitely. Exactly. You know, and um, you can, I mean, you can go somewhere like Cocos and you can fish spawning shrimp all week. Right. Um, but then uh, to really get sort of that knowledge of what exactly you need to use to target what things. And, and the other thing there is you're working with depth and current and things. So, you know, different weights, et cetera. So all that sort of stuff at all, you know, if you can kind of find that prior knowledge before you go there, then it's going to make your fishing experience even better. Yeah. And so for people, if they want to find either your address and that's sort of thing where the store is, or if they want to jump online and make an online purchase, where can they find your website? Uh, yeah, just at flyfishingoutfitters.com.au um, or again, you can jump onto either Instagram or Facebook at Fly Fishing Outfitters um, and uh, yeah, you can reach out or you give me a call, have a chat, whatever. I'd definitely recommend to give you a follow on Instagram because you're not bad behind the camera sort of thing. So if um, if you do enjoy looking at a blingy reel or that sort of thing or um, yeah, it, it's always a, a visual delight jumping onto the Fly Fishing Outfitters Instagram page. <laughs> Yeah, cheers, mate. Appreciate that. I like uh, shiny gear and I like my camera, so it kind of goes well <laughs> together. Uh, you've done a great job, mate. Like, it's good to see that you're kicking some goals over there in the West and um, the locals over there are lucky to have such a good store that's, yeah, putting in all the effort and that sort of thing and, and bringing all the great brands to the area and you're investing in travel and that sort of thing just so you can offer that best service and advice to people that are going on their own trips because at the end of the day, a lot of these places, it's a lot of time and money in that, so having someone like yourself that they can go in and talk to or jump on the phone or shoot an email. It is um, super beneficial to the customer as well. So hats off to you for putting in all the effort and yeah, kicking ass. <laughs> yeah. Cheers, man. Much appreciated. Well, we might wrap things up. I think we've covered a little bit there, but um, yeah. So if anyone wants to follow you, jump on uh, Instagram or Facebook, Fly Fishing Outfitters. Um, you can visit your website, flyfishingoutfitters.com.au drop-in store, which I'd highly advise if you're in the Perth area, like it's a, um, yeah, pretty much a one-stop shop. You've got just about everything there. 
if you don't have it, you can get it. And um, yeah, there's always going to be someone interesting to talk to there as well. So hats off to you with the shot, mate. And thanks heaps for making the time for jumping on. Like as soon as I saw the photos from your trip, I really wanted to hear about this Borneo adventure because when you look at something like a Kaloi, you just go, what the hell? It looks like a, a mixture between like a fish tank fish and a rhino and yeah, something that's a little bit yeah. mutated. So it's just cool to hear about the whole experience, how you got there and how you did it. Yeah, that's it. And it's kind of like the fish has a lot of substance behind it as well. You know, it's not just the fish, but it's the travel and, and the location, etc. So it's a cool fish to talk about and it's quite an interesting one. Yeah. And also too, for people, if they want to look up Faja as well, um, Spice Island Outfitters, he's got an Instagram page as well. Yeah, Facebook and Instagram can um, hit him up on that as well. And um, he's always super happy to help out, always eager to have a chat. Yeah, beautiful. All right, we'll wrap this up now again, Angus, but I'll, um, I'll talk to you no doubt soon and we'll, um, we'll probably jump on after your next adventure, I reckon. Yeah, awesome, mate. Much appreciated and have a great night. Beautiful. Thanks for your time, mate. Cheers.